is found in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 10. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 45. Exodus 1, 15 to 2, 10. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's uh, pray one more time. Father, we thank you for the word that has now just been read. We thank you that it communicates your heart to us. We pray for your spirit to give us wisdom, insight, understanding, that we might know your heart, we might know your message, your words to us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are kickstarting a new sermon series through the book of Exodus. We are going to go eventually through all 40 chapters, so it is not going to be a quick mini-series. This fall, we're actually only going to be able to get through the first 17 chapters. We're really going to have to wait till 2019 uh, for us to be able to finish off uh, part two uh, and cover the remaining chapters. So this is going to be 
a heavy investment for us in the book of Exodus. And I realize that there are probably some pastors who wouldn't make this choice. I think of a popular preacher who recently was trying to get his congregation to, quote-unquote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. And by unhitch, he meant that we need to help Christians to understand and to defend the faith without having to rely on the Old Testament. I don't think he was necessarily denying its truthfulness, but because the Old Testament's worldviews and values and laws are considered so foreign and even sometimes backwards to modern people like us, there are teachers who are saying that, that, that nowadays we're going to make a better case for Jesus, a better case for the Christian faith if we leave the Old Testament out of the argument. And one of the many good reasons why we're going to do a sermon series through the book of Exodus is to demonstrate the fallacy of that kind of thinking. Have you ever walked into a movie theater halfway into the film? Or maybe go to a friend's house late and they've already started a movie and they're halfway through? I mean, just imagine trying to watch a a complex cerebral movie like The Matrix, but starting in the second half. I mean, can you imagine that experience? Right? You're, just, you're confused the whole time. You're like, why do they look like poor beggars in one scene, and suddenly in the next scene, they're like cool runway models? And like, man, how are they so flexible, you know, bending backwards, you know, all the way touching the ground? And, and wait, how does he know kung fu? It's just, it's going to confuse you. Now, some movies are so simple, and they have plot lines that are so predictable that it doesn't really matter when you start the movie, but then there are those kinds of films that apply so many layers of symbolism and foreshadowing, and they have so many twists and turns and so many characters and subplots that you're just lost if you don't start from the beginning. You might get the gist of it in the end, but there's just so much more in the story that you fail to understand and fail to appreciate. And so that, my friends, is why I think we need the Old Testament. We can't unhitch our New Testament faith from the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to lose the ability to recognize and appreciate the beauty and the goodness and the truthfulness of the New Testament, especially of the gospel. And that's why in our preaching here in this service, we we try to go back and forth between a, a series through a New Testament book and then in an Old Testament book. And so back in the spring, we studied the whole book of 1 Timothy, and now we're going to be in Exodus. And our goal, our goal here is to equip you with biblical themes and biblical categories from the old so that you will be able to better understand and appreciate the new. And I think our, uh, Exodus is arguably one of the best books for doing that. Some have called Exodus the Old Testament gospel. I think that's a fitting description. I read a book this summer called Echoes of Exodus, which makes that very case. The authors try to show how the Exodus event is key to understanding the entire Bible, that there are so many illustrations in the rest of Scripture that allude to to, to the redemptive deeds of God that are found here in this book. 
And so if you're, you, you, I think you really are going to have a hard time grasping the nuances of God's greater work of redemption in the New Testament if you don't have a working knowledge of the book of Exodus. An example that they give in the book is how, is how you, you're not really going to fully understand and appreciate Disney's The Lion King unless you're familiar with Shakespeare's Hamlet. And you might be like, mind blown, wow, yes, it was based on Hamlet. Now, even if you have no idea, you know, what's in Hamlet, you don't even know what Hamlet is, I'm sure you can enjoy The Lion King. But, but a good grasp of Hamlet is only going to increase your enjoyment the next time you sit down to watch The Lion King. You're going to have more categories to help you to better understand, to better empathize with the loss of a father, the betrayal of an uncle, the shame of exile, and such other plot lines that are very similar. And so that's what I hope to see happen as we study Exodus. I hope and pray that your love for Christ and his gospel is going to deepen and your appreciation for what he accomplished for you on the cross will only increase. And I believe, I believe studying the Old Testament gospel is going to really help you to grasp the breadth and the height and the depth of the real gospel, the gospel of Jesus. So as we begin our series, begin this morning, we're going to start in chapter 1. We're only going to go into uh, the first part of chapter 2, down to verse 10. And I'm really going to just break down this message into gospel categories. So if you're going to follow along, you look inside your uh, bulletin, there's an outline. And we're just going to consider three things. God's plan, the enemy's strategy, and God's deliverance. Very simple gospel outline right there. So let's begin by considering God's plan, specifically the continuity of God's plan. God has a plan that he introduced in the very first book of the Bible, a plan to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth through one chosen nation, one chosen family. And, and really speaking of walking into a movie halfway in, that's kind of what it's like to start reading in Exodus chapter 1 without any knowledge of what took place earlier in the entire book of Genesis. I mean, really, Exodus is best understood as one chapter in a five-chapter book. The Torah or the Pentateuch is, is the ancient name for the first five books of Scripture. And so if it's to be read really as one whole book, then chapter 2 of a book obviously should be read in light of what took place in chapter 1. And the continuity of the two books is glaring when you just consider the first seven verses of Exodus. So look there with me. We didn't read it earlier, but look at the prologue of Exodus. And just in these seven verses, you'll see the connection. First off, if, if you could read it in Hebrew, you would notice that the first Hebrew word in the book is the word and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, English translations typically omit the word and because nobody starts off a book with the word and. But of course, that's the point. 
Exodus is more of a chapter in a larger book than a standalone book by itself. There are other points of continuity. For example, if you uh, read verse 7, in verse 7, you're going to hear an echo of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God tells the first couple to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. So now listen with me to verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Friends, those similar word choices are no coincidence. The author is reminding the reader of God's creation mandate in Genesis 1 to multiply and fill the earth. And he's suggesting that what is happening right now to the Israelites in Egypt as they multiplied and grew, that was a sign of God's favor and blessing upon them. There's another point of continuity if you just look at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. The first six words in verse 1 are an exact repetition of Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. Genesis 46, verse 8, there we're given a more detailed genealogy of the sons of Jacob who came with him to Egypt with their whole families. This is just in Exodus, a very quick summation. And, and the genealogy here of one particular family reminds us of God's sovereign choice to bless one family, starting with their patriarch, Abraham. And so if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant. And in this promise, he promises to bless him as the father of a great people with many offspring who are going to be settled in a good and fruitful land. And he reaffirms that promise in Genesis chapter 13, and then in chapter 15, and then in chapter 17. But of all of God's promises to Abraham and to his offspring, arguably the greatest promise was his promise, not to just make them a big people and give them a big land, but to be their God. The greatest blessing, greater than a large family and even larger land, is the blessing of knowing God and knowing that he's your God. He's on your side and he works, he works all things for your good. That's the greatest promise and the greatest blessing that he offers. So by the time we arrive in Exodus, we see that God has proven himself to be faithful to his promises, having given Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. But at this point, though, in the story, they have yet to find rest in their own land. And so that unfulfilled aspect of the promise really is what drives most of the plot throughout the rest of this book. The, the hope of land, a land of their own. But Again, the biggest theme of Exodus really has to do with God's promise to be their God. And throughout this book, he begins to reveal himself to his people in ways that he did not in the first chapter, that is the book of Exodus. 
starting with his name and then with his sovereignty and power and then his justice and mercy and then his law and his grace and of course his glory, God begins to reveal himself. And one of the most common refrains in the book is God saying multiple times throughout Exodus that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that so that you, either he's talking to the Israelites or he's talking to the Egyptians, that you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Every time you're going to see the Lord written in your Bible in small caps, and that's really a, a way to reference the name, the Hebrew name Yahweh, the self-revealed name of God that's found later in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. That's where God tells Moses to tell the Israelites that I am sent you. And so what that tells us is that God's name, the name he reveals himself to be is I am. And that's why we've titled this sermon series, You Shall Know I Am. That's the, really the big idea of this entire book. It's all about God revealing the knowledge of who he is to his people and then to the nations. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that the same God has the same continuous plan for his people today and for the world. The continuity extends into our day. That means God's promises of a great people to Abraham and a great land still stand and his blessing still flows through Abraham's children. But friends, as we continue reading the Bible progressively from the, from the old into the new, the scriptures progressively reveal that the promise of a people will be fulfilled not just through one people and one nation, the Israelites, but eventually through a new kingdom people made up of all the nations of the world. And the promise of rest in a land of your own will be fulfilled not just through one geographic region on the Mediterranean coast of the Middle East, but eventually through a final rest in a new creation on a newly renewed earth. And it's not as if God's plan suddenly changed by the time you enter into the New Testament. No, it's just that the grand vision of his promises to bless all the people and all the earth really didn't come into shape until the one true Israelite, the Messiah, the Son of God, arrived to fulfill the promises that were originally given to Abraham. And so that's why we read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, the Apostle Paul, he explains how anyone can actually be a child of Abraham through faith in this Messiah that God has sent. It reads that like this, Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that means God's 
plan from the beginning had a view to bless all the nations, all the people groups of the world, and the plan to do that has been continuous from day one until today. It always starts with God mercifully, graciously revealing himself to individuals. And friend, that could be you. I don't know where all of you are coming from. I, I don't know where all of you stand in relation to God. Perhaps there are some of you here who don't know him. And the good news, the good news I want you to hear is that the God you don't know is the God who seeks to be known, whose heart is to reveal himself to his creation. God already knows you. He wants you to know him. And knowing him, according to the scriptures, requires knowing his son. He has revealed himself through his son, Jesus. Now, there are also those of you here who assume you know God because you were born in a Christian family. And you were raised in a Christian church where you were taught about God as far back as you can remember, you've been taught about God. But knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God. For some of you, it's like you're living under the old covenant, thinking that you are a child of Abraham, that you become a part of the people of God by physical birth, by being born into the faith. But friend, that is not how it works under the new covenant. No one is born into the faith. You have to be born again to even have faith. You don't become a child of Abraham by physical birth, but by spiritual rebirth. You need to be born again. That's how God is revealed to you. And remember, that's his heart. That's his plan from the beginning, to make himself known to individuals among a chosen people that they might then extend that knowledge to the nation. If you don't know God, you need to be born again. Cry out to him for him to reveal himself to you. I urge that of each of you. You know, from the beginning... There has been this plan, but there's also been an enemy trying to unravel that plan. And that leads us to our second point. We consider the continuity of God's plan. Now, starting in verse 8 of chapter 1, we see the misery caused by the enemy's strategy to undo what God has set in motion. What we're going to see here is an ancient strategy. We're going to see Pharaoh try to stop God's people and thereby his plan by means of two things, slavery and death. That's nothing new. It's just an extension of the same strategy that our real enemy has always been applying. Just think back to the garden. Think back to after tempting the first couple to disobey. The devil has been subjecting mankind from that day forth to other masters and terrorizing mankind with the prospect of death. What we read here in our chapter is just an extension of that strategy. 
You have here, as we're told in verse 8, a new Pharaoh come into power who didn't know Joseph. And the growing number of Israelites in his land became a growing threat to him. They were beginning to outnumber the Egyptians. And so what if they form an alliance with an invading nation and they all escape? What are we going to do? Well, let's, let's make them slaves. Let's subjugate them. Look at verse 13. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What's worth noting is how it says in verse 12 that the more that God's people were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Suppressing them only resulted in spreading them. That's really the sovereign grace of God at work here. Sinful men can oppress God's people, meaning it for evil, but God can sovereignly work through their oppression, meaning the exact same thing for good. We see this phenomenon play out in the book of Acts as the first disciples are persecuted, they're beaten, they're thrown in jail. And yet, what does it do? It just emboldens them to keep preaching Jesus and more and more get added to their number every day. And when the hammer really drops on the church in Jerusalem, in God's providence, it serves as the motivation that they need to scatter to be witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So church, what I'm trying to say here is that God's sovereign grace is still at work today through working through the hostility and the oppression that is being directed at Christians in our nation and in all the nations of the earth. And so when we're praying for the church in America or if we're praying for the church in any other country, yes, we should be praying for peace. We should be praying for the preservation or maybe in some countries for the increase of religious liberty. But let us not lose hope, no matter how bleak the situation can be. For as we see, even here, from ancient of days, God is still sovereign and his grace still works even through the wickedest and the grimmest of circumstances. Our God is the same. He works back then. He works today in the exact same way. Take hope in that, friends. Now, when we get to verse 15, Pharaoh recognizes that enslaving God's people has only resulted in expanding God's people. And so he adopts a more diabolical, murderous strategy. He instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill all newborn baby boys. Because he's thinking if he can call out an entire generation of young men, well, then they have less to fear if there's a growing population of Israelites. But we're told, if you look in verse 17, that the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared man, and they refused to go along. And when they were eventually called in to explain why the policy is failing, and there are still a bunch of baby boys in town, well, they say that, you know, it's because Hebrew women, they're just vigorous, and they, their babies pop out before we can even arrive. 
Now, it's not clear whether that's a white lie or maybe God actually sovereignly did cause their labor to happen faster than normal. Either way, the midwives serve as an example of courage and godly shrewdness navigating the complexities of their profession without compromising their conviction. You know, I, I know this congregation that many of you are in the medical profession where you are dealing on a regular basis with issues of life and death. And, you know, as the culture of death continually pervades the very profession that is dedicated to the preservation of life, well, friend, if, if, if you're in that industry, you can look at these Hebrew midwives as models of courage who are worthy of imitation. May you likewise refuse to meet the demands of the culture of death, and may you stand firm for life. And may the Lord deal with you well as he did for these women and for their families. Now, if we read on in verse 22, we see Pharaoh growing more desperate, and so he issues now a horrific edict, calling for all baby Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile. It's an unspeakable evil. Can't imagine anyone carrying out this policy. But really, it comes at no surprise when you consider how it was likely the devil himself who incited Pharaoh to come up with and to carry out this strategy. I mean, just remember, remember that the devil was told all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that his doom would be sealed by the birth of a boy from the offspring of Eve who would crush his head as he bruised his heel. And ever since that day, the devil has been targeting boys in the line of Eve. I mean, just think about how he incited Cain to kill Abel or how he incited the older brothers to, to betray their younger brother, Joseph. And now, now as the number of baby boys is exponentially growing, the devil is getting desperate and he is now going to incite a much larger and systematic approach to deal with his one fear, to deal with the one question that keeps him up at night. Who is this offspring of Eve? And so he turns to his strategy of slavery and death. That's been the enemy's strategy. And by highlighting it right here in chapter 1, this book is saying, is saying that, that we share, the reader shares in the same affliction as the Israelites. By emphasizing this strategy here, by showing that it's continuous, that the devil will continue to enslave and to cause us to fear through death, it's saying that all of us are enslaved to something and all of us are in need of deliverance. And that enslavement and that deliverance is always deeper than we tend to think. I mean, just, just think about the Israelites, because even after 
they are delivered from their chains and taskmasters, and they eventually get settled into a land of their own. The rest of the New Testament demonstrates how God's people, they're still enslaved, but to chains that are invisible in their hearts. And they still have taskmasters that are internal in their flesh. I mean, that's really what Jesus tried to explain to the Jews of his day. The Jews of his day saw the book of Exodus as merely a story about God and their ancestors, but they did not realize that this book is an illustration of our spiritual condition. So listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They, the Jews, answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So friends, let's, let's not make the same mistake. Let's not miss the fact that Exodus is not just a nice story, but it's illustration that reveals something about our own struggle with sin. All of us in our flesh are slaves to sin. No matter how hard we try to rise above ourselves, we always fall back into the same patterns of sin, the same patterns of disobedience. We are enslaved. But friends, there is freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. His gospel truth is what sets you free. Free. That is the good news of Christianity. You know, let's also be careful not to make the mistake of assuming that slavery and submission are the same thing, or that freedom means having no more rules or no more authority over you. This, this is a point I, I really want to drive home for those of you who are incoming college freshmen. I don't know if Maybe if any of you are just visiting for the first time, you just got here to Houston, or, or maybe for some of you um, graduating seniors from our church, you haven't gone off to college yet. I want to speak this specifically to you. I'm going to assume that most of you grew up with your parents taking you to church. But now, now that you're going off to college, you're going to experience a newfound freedom. There's really no one going to make you go to church. But here is where you need to understand the enemy's strategy. He is going to try to fool you into thinking that true freedom and thereby true happiness will be found by throwing off the rules and the religion of your youth. But the book of Exodus teaches us something very different. As we study this book, we're going to see that freedom from slavery led God's people directly to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they were given laws and they were given rules, where they were called to submit to the authority of their God and king. So what this is 
this story will show us is that freedom is not about throwing off all authority. Freedom is about submitting yourself under a good authority and under the right rules and laws that are going to be life-giving, that are meant for your joy, for your flourishing. That's what freedom is. Maybe you've heard it said that you can't liberate a goldfish by taking him out of his fishbowl. You could argue that the limitations of the fishbowl, they're just so unfair. They're unfair restrictions to his freedom. So you want to liberate him. You want him to, to be able to choose to go where he wants to go and to live where he wants to live, but you're just going to kill him. My friends, that's exactly what the enemy is going to do to you. He's going to entice you with a false form of freedom that only leads to death. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus and his rules, his authority, which are meant to give life and not to take it. The Son has come to set you free so that you would be free indeed. And that leads to our third and final point. The misery caused by the devil's strategy leads to the unexpectedness of God's deliverance. As we go into chapter 2, we see God setting down a pattern for how he's going to deliver his people. He sends them a deliverer, one who is like them, but at the same time, one who is different from them all the way from birth. We're told that God set apart a young priest for his deliverance. His parents, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, were Levites. Levites are the tribe of Israel that would later be dedicated as the priests for the entire nation. And I think the mention of his Levitical heritage is a use of foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing the priestly role that Moses is going to one day play. Because many times throughout the rest of the book, you're going to see him standing in the gap, interceding for the people, pleading for mercy. He's going to be a priest for the people. There's actually a lot of foreshadowing going on just in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, just in this birth narrative of Moses. I mean, just look with me at verse 3. There it says in verse 3, after hiding Moses for three months, his mother realizes he can't, she can't con continue to conceal him any longer. And so she makes a basket for him. And that word, listen, that word for basket is the same word for ark that you're going to find in Genesis chapter 6 to 8. And those are the only two places in all the Old Testament where that word shows up. And just like Noah's ark, Moses's was also covered with pitch. I mean, the similarities here would not have been lost on these, these Israelites who are reading this for the first time, going from Genesis to Exodus. So just as God used an ark in the past to protect and preserve his people from the waters of destruction, he is doing it once again. This, this, this also foreshadows what comes later on in the book when his people are threatened again, once again, by waters of destruction. Notice with me how in verse 3 at the end, it says that Moses was placed in the Nile River among the reeds, and that word for reeds shows up later in this book. In Exodus 13, verse 18, 
where the people arrive at the banks of the Red Sea, or literally the Sea of Reeds, right before God parts it. And so the point here is clear. God is going to keep protecting and preserving his people through waters of destruction. And this just, again, reinforces the importance that I've been making of needing to read the Bible progressively and recognizing how earlier events of deliverance are supplying you with categories that are going to help you to better understand and appreciate the greater deliverances to come. And that goes back to what I said in the beginning as to why we're even studying Exodus in the first place. I'm convinced that with a better grasp of the Old Testament gospel, you're going to have a better and firmer grasp of the real gospel, God's ultimate deliverance through his son, Jesus. The two events are clearly connected in Scripture. There's actually this moment in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, verse 30, where Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says that he's talking with two men, and the two men are identified as Moses and Elijah. And scripture says that they were speaking about his departure. And literally in the Greek, it says they were speaking about Jesus's exodus. His exodus. That is no accident in word choice. Jesus's impending death resurrection and ascension are understood by the gospel writers to be a new exodus. He was fulfilling the role of a new Moses who would deliver God's people from a greater enemy and a deeper slavery and a much more terrifying death, eternal death and condemnation. And the way he would deliver is completely unexpected. Jesus would defeat sin and death by bearing sin and dying. He would put himself under his enemies in order to defeat his enemies. That's the beautiful irony of the cross. And the same, if you think about it, the same unexpected kind of deliverance is foreshadowed here in Moses' birth narrative. I mean, just think about how the future deliverer of Israel ends up being raised in the household of the very enemy who is subjugating and oppressing Israel. As the story goes, Pharaoh's daughter finds the little ark bobbing in the river. And in a turn of events, Moses' mother, she even still gets a chance to nurse her son, to raise him until he was probably about three years old. And then she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter and he legally became her son. Israel's future deliverer from Egypt became a prince of Egypt. God was already demonstrating that same sense of irony. He put his deliverer under his enemies, I mean, literally under their roof, in order to one day defeat his enemy. And years later, he would do the same thing and accomplish an even greater deliverance. So church, the take home is this. You know, for many of us, I think we've grown far too familiar and complacent towards the gospel, right? I mean, these, the gospel realities no longer elicit the same kind of 
sorrow or wonder within us anymore. You know, we know we're sinners, but I think what we need is a visual of a Hebrew slave being whipped and beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster to finally realize what sin is actually doing to us on a regular basis. You know, we know the wages of sin is death, but what we need is to picture a Hebrew baby boy being thrown into a river or to picture or to hear the wail of Egyptian parents waking up to find their firstborn dead in order for us to remember the true horrors of death and what we all deserve outside of Christ. We know Jesus died for our sins, but we need a palpable image of a bloody lamb and a blood-stained doorway so that we would never belittle what the Lord sacrificed, that we might live and live free. Sometimes the best way to recapture the wonder of the salvation that you're experiencing in Christ is really just to, to visualize a great towering wall of water on both sides of you that could and should crush you in an instant if not for the merciful God who is holding it back with his strong arm so that you might safely journey home to a promised land of final rest. That is why we're going to read, and that is why I hope you cherish the book of Exodus. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word the beauty of it, the harmony of it, the coherence of it, and how it is telling one big story. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue to study your word deeply in the book of Exodus, that you would awaken something new in each of us, either a newfound faith and newfound love and appreciation that was never there, or one that has remained dormant for far too long. Whatever it is that you need to do in our hearts, by the power of your word and spirit, do that in us, Lord. Help us to recapture the wonder of your salvation, of your deliverance in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.